Well, hello everybody, this is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 63. Thanks as always for joining us. Our guest today is Jessica Goodfellow, all the way from uh, the morning of uh, Kobe, Japan. We'll be joining her in just a bit. Before we do, I should say that Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been continuous publication since 1995, that's 25 years, and we uh, are unaffiliated with any other organization. We just do it because we love poetry, and if you love poetry, please click the like button, or share, or rate it on iTunes, or um, whatever, like give it a little emoticon on Facebook, and that'll help a lot. I have to say that in the beginning, because every time I try to say that at the end, I forget. So, um, so I have to do it at the beginning, I'm sorry about that. Now, before we get our warm-up poem uh, today, as everybody trickles in, um, is this, I hit the uh, random button, which I like to do, and this poem popped up. Let's see, this is Tying the Knot by Kathleen Dale. And this is the first poem that I remember um, picking out of the slush pile, as you call it. Although there's nothing but slush pile at Rattle. All we do is read submissions that people submit. But in 2004, when I was like a little kid... Uh, who just got my first um, adult job in California, um, I remember reading this poem in the slush pile, which every t- it was email submissions at the time. We printed every single thing out. What a waste of paper and ink. Um, but this was a good one. This was Kathleen Dale with Tying the Knot. And there's no audio, so I'll have to read it for you. But uh, here we go. Tying the Knot. I struggle, spread on the bow, sweat dripping, to wet fingerless gloves, to tie a bowline in the stiff, slimed, hulking rope of the mooring. Patiently you have told me out of the hole, round the tree into the hole, but line resists loop, hole's edge laps backwards, or rabbit runs around the tree, witter shins, and under my hands fall away to nothing. Neither has my double hitched held, the second twist taking a wrong turn sliding free, unsnagged, deep into churning water. You've tried to show me how to plate the figure eight, infinite not holding firm under the stress, but in calm, slipping free. I've shrunk from the bright beam of love's dazzling ring, that lasso's unwavering light. I've shied from enclosure, cheered when the cowpoke's laureate falls flat. Yet how tenderly, You would wrap a tasseled cord round the skittish bones of my wrist, then your own as we laced vows. You'd lead me, blindfolded, mare from a blazing barn, lash me like that other sailor to a mast of trust. Show me, my Houdini, once again how to tie that automatic knot, how bitter ends come naturally to connection how blunt, blind fingers find the way to links that simply last or loosen on command, even in the dark of inattention, even under water, even in a sunken trunk bound with leather straps, even as expert, lithe, adept, we brim with hold each other's breath. And that was Kathleen Dale from Rattle number 22, way back in winter 2004. The, literally the first poem that I pulled out of the slush pile is something that uh, struck a chord with me. I love all those um, descriptions of uh, knots, which I know nothing about being um, the, the, the opposite of a sailor. 
Um, and I looked up uh, Kathleen Dale, uh, which I, I don't know anything about her either. She, Kathleen Dale was born in Kansas, though she has lived in the shore of Lake Michigan for many years. She and her husband have three grown daughters and two grandsons. In her full-length book of poetry, The Beautiful Unnamed, is from Zaraguya Press in 2015. So, so five years ago, she had her first book. Um, it was great to publish that poem back in the day. Now, um, our guest today, as I mentioned, is Jessica Goodfellow, from, who lives in Japan now. Uh, her, and her most recent book we'll be focusing on is Whiteout. Um, she's appeared in three issues of Rattle, incurring the, uh, including the current fall issue. She grew up in the suburbs of Philadelphia um, and has spent the last 20 years in California, Florida, and Japan. She has an MS degree from the California Institute of Technology and an MA in Linguistics. Her first book of poetry, The Insomniac's Weather Report from Three Candles Press, won that first book prize and was reissued by Isabel Press in 2014. She also has a book, Men- uh, Mendelev's Mandala from Mayapple Press. And her new book here, Whiteout, is from uh, the University of Alaska Press. And uh, here she is, Jessica Goodfellow. Hello, Jessica. How are you doing tonight? Hi, Tim. Thanks so much for having me today. Yeah, so glad to have you. Um, um, do you want to start out by reading a poem? Sure. Um, I think I'll start out with the poem that was published in Rattle, if that's okay. Yeah, that's a good it's, one. Um, it's on page 28. Yeah, great. Let's go to it. Okay, and it's called Unconsoled in the book. When it was published in Rattle, it had a different title, Wakening. Mm-hmm. But now it's uh, in the book, it's called Unconsoled. Okay, let's go. Okay, Unconsoled. In my dreams, my uncle rides the glacier like a surfboard, arms wide open like a savior. If he had lived, he might have solved my childhood. He dismounts the mountain, astonished to see me, no longer two years old and mittened, hands hampered by love. I'm sorry, I say, we almost never speak of you. It's okay, he says. A snowman is a man built of snow. A snow angel is made by taking snow away. It's such a wonderful poem, and and now called Unconsoled, with this... um, um, words that contain the word uncle, which is an interesting um, thing that you did throughout this book. Um, a lot of the poems, maybe maybe a third or a half of them, have that those titles. Um, do you want to um, just explain what the book is about? Um, you know, your your uncle. It's about your uncle, obviously, and um, and he died in um, on Mount Denali, then called Mount McKinley, in right. in 1967. Um, do you want to just explain a little bit about why you um, wrote the book? Yeah. So um, in 1967, my uncle was one of 12 climbers who uh, were, lo- well, they climbed Mount McKinley. It was called Mount McKinley at the time. Um, now it's called Denali. So you'll actually uh, hear it both ways in the book. Um, but my uncle was, of the 12 climbers, seven were lost in a terrible, terrible storm that lasted 10 days with 200 mile per hour winds, just a kind of one time, once in a century, terrible storm. Um, my uncle was one of the seven who was lost. He was only 22 years old when it happened. And, um, all the men were young. They were all 30 or younger. And, um, 
it was very devastating for my family. Um, I was two years old when it happened, so I actually don't recall any of it. But I grew up in this sort of silence about it. We didn't talk about it very much. I certainly knew that it had happened. Um, so this book is both about um, the accident and also about what it's like to grow up in a family that has a terrible tragedy um, kind of hanging over them. And also don't, you know, are unable to talk about it. And then the his body, you know, was not recovered. So that brings another layer of um, difficulty in dealing with the loss. So it's about that as well. Yeah. Do you want to do you want to read another poem just to, you know, it's a, it's a book that has a very clear um, topic. So it's probably good to read a few sort of early on so everybody gets a sense sure. of it. Um, okay. Um, this one is called Untraceable. It's on page five. And it's also got the word uncle in the title. Okay, so mm -hmm. untraceable. Either he burrowed under a skin of snow that turned out to be the arch of the foot of the storm. Or the storm lulled, so he went for help, stepping through the ice over skylight of the underworld. Or he was wind-snapped like a bedsheet on a clothesline, then loosed, then tossed. Later, his sleeping bag was found, wrapped around a pole like a seahorse, tail grasping at eelgrass, limbless against the current. Tatsu no otoshigo, that creature's called in Japanese, child dropped by a dragon. And that was Untraceable from uh, Jessica Goodfellow's book, White Out. Um, so as you were writing this book, you um, had an intern, or a... Uh, what's the word a fellowship or a, a residency uh yeah it, it, uh, not, yeah no. artist in residency artist in residency yeah how did that come about i mean it's it's sort of um a, a perfect a wonderful thing you know given this topic that you got to spend time there um how, what was the residency like and, and how did you like find out about it um and are you from alaska i that's something i don't know too no where, where are you from no. i'm from philadelphia mm -hmm. um that's where i grew up um so I was, you know, I was writing this book, um, and I was looking on, I, I was writing about um, some of the flora and the fauna I wanted to include in the, in one of a, the poems, and I thought I had better get it right. I'd never been to Alaska at that point. So I just went to the national, to the to Denali National Park and Preserve website to look up, like, make sure I was getting the flora right, and um I just happened to see that they had a writers in residency program and I just looked at it and I thought, oh, I, I would love to apply for this. I didn't think there was any chance I would get it, um, but I applied and um, I did get it. They actually have, how many, four, four artists um, in the summer and two in the winter every year. And uh, so I went, I, I was allowed uh, to bring a guest, so I brought my older sister with me. And uh, we flew in to Alaska. We flew in and we visited a glacier. And then we went to Talkeetna and we were able to take a, a little small plane flight and land up on Denali, part, you know, quite low, but part of the way up. Then we drove into the park where we were stayed for 10 days in a cabin in the wilderness. I mean, it's really remote. You could be, you could never see anybody if you didn't want to. But, um, yeah, so we were and we were able to go all over the park uh, to go to places we knew that our uncle had been, and um, 
just observe everything. It was amazing. It was a really, really amazing experience. Um, many people who visit the park never get to see Denali because of the weather system. It's often um, covered. Uh, and so we were there. When we were there, one of the bus drivers that we talked to, because the bus, you have to take a bus on, you're not allowed to take a private car. We were, because we were the artists in residence, but regular people aren't allowed to bring private cars into the park to past a certain point. And the bus driver told us he'd been there all summer and seen Denali three times. And we were there 10 days and saw Denali nine of the 10 days. And it was just out all the time for us. And we really felt like... It was a really healing experience to be there, to be really, really honest. The last time anybody in my family had been there was when my grandparents and my mother flew up during the 10 days that they were waiting to find out if anybody was going to survive the storm. So it was a terrible, oh, that wasn't the last time. That was the last time my mother had been there. My grandparents have been there since then. But, you know, it was really, really healing for us mm -hmm. to be there, and, and it was a wonderful experience. Yeah, how much did you know about um, about your uncle and about you know, like had he climbed like like part of the book is about how the family doesn't doesn't talk about his death very much and he's sort of a um, I don't know like a silent thing that people don't bring up. Um, how much did you know about your uncle um, going in? You were two years old when he died. Um, he was twenty two when he died. Had he right. had he been climbing a lot of mountains? Was this something that he did regularly or um, what, what what was he like? So he did start climbing mountains uh, a couple of years before Denali, before he climbed Denali. Um, he, he went, the um, leader of the expedition was his best, best friend, and he trained with him prior to going. Um, he just had graduated from college in April, and he died in July, so he was very young. He had majored in physics. He was a, a smart man, a scientific kind of guy. Um, he lived with our family the summer, my family, my parents and my sister and me, the summer before he died, during, you know, during between his junior and senior year of college to save money. Um, and there are very, you know, my mother would tell a couple of the same stories about him. And so I knew maybe three or four stories. That's about it. Mm -hmm. um, we just didn't talk about him. And his picture was all, you know, was hanging on the wall of the, um, of our home. And... Um, several, you know, this this is a very very famous accident. If in mountaineering circles, like, um, so there are a lot of books written about it, and the books were on the shelf. Mm -hmm. But I knew not to talk them, not to open them, not to talk about them. Um, one time when I was about ten or eleven, I opened the book up and flipped through. There's pictures in the center, as they do with nonfiction books, and I looked at all the pictures, and then I put it back before anybody saw that I had looked at it. The taboo was was really strong to me, you know. And to, I'm not sure. I'm a pretty sensitive person, so I don't know how, you know, if I was oversensitive to the taboo. But it wasn't. It wasn't something that we talked about. Yeah. So, so was most of your research done through the books that other people had written or did you talk to people in your family as you um, as you put this book together? Yeah. Well, a really strange thing happened. I was in the bookstore uh, and here in Japan and I saw a book book that said uh, it was about people who disappear in Alaska because it's a pretty common phenomenon for people to disappear. It's a huge hmm. uh, empty space. A lot of people go there running away from things. And so um, disappearances of people are are common. So I saw that book and I thought, oh, I wonder if my uncle's in it. 
and then I didn't buy it. And then I visited it three or four more times in the bookstore and didn't buy it. And then finally, I was like, this is silly. Buy the book. Nobody will know. You know, I'm here in Japan. My parents are not going to know if I buy the book. So I bought it. I read it. Of course, my uncle was not in it because it, it wasn't that kind of thing. But it, but it got me thinking about about everything. And then I ended up just writing a poem on um the poem got published and I was like, oh, well, I hope my mom doesn't find out. <laughs> and then uh, another poem came along and that one got published. And I, I was like, oh, oh, this is this is bad. I hope she doesn't find out. And then like a third one. And then I was like, I got to I got to tell her I can't not assume that she'll never find out. So I you know, told her like, oh, I've been uh, publishing poems about your brother. And I sent her links or copies or whatever. And, you know, she's, she didn't seem unhappy about it. She didn't seem upset. And then more and more poems kept coming. And then I was like, oh, uh, this is a book. Oh, no. <laughs> so then I talked to my mom about it. My grandparents have, have passed away since uh, before this happened. Um, so I talked to my mother about it. And she said, um, if you want to write a book about my brother, I don't want you to write only about his death. I want you to include his life. And I was like, how? I don't know anything about his life because we don't talk about him. So she said, when you come and visit me next time, we'll talk about him. Hmm. So the next time I went to California, my parents are in California. The next time I went to California to visit, the whole visit passed and we didn't talk about him. And we didn't, it was the same old pattern, not talking, not talking. And then the night before I was going to leave, my mother said, well, are we going to talk about this or not? And I was like, okay. So she told my dad to go up into the attic and bring down these boxes. And my dad went upstairs and brought down these huge, huge boxes. And they were full of all the newspaper clip clippings and pictures and all the letters people sent after the accident. And, uh, we went through them and we talked about them and my mother she excused herself for a minute and my father said how did you get her to talk about this no one has talked about this in you know 50 years and i said i just asked her and um anyway we talked for a couple of hours and then all of a sudden she said okay i'm done i'm done we're, we're done and and so i didn't get as much information as, as was there but i got more than i ever had do you, do you think that um like like she wanted to talk about it like do you think that she had some kind of um like feeling of of getting it off her chest or something like was it a positive experience for her having this book and and finally talking about it when it's like this thing that people walk on eggshells and don't touch well i never knew who it was that was driving the silence and my mother said that it was her mother um that she said she said she told me that she and her father my grandfather would talk seek privately about about um my uncle Stephen, but um that her mother didn't want to talk about it so um i i don't think i could have written this book when my grandparents were still alive but i think they would have been okay with it if i did and my mom i think you know she's given this book out to friends and she seems very pleased you know very and very proud of it and it's been a healing book in a couple of other ways um it, there's a lot of books about this particular accident. First of all, because it was at the time it was the worst mountaineering accident in U.S. history and the third worst mm -hmm. in the world. I think um, it's. I'm sorry to say that it's been surpassed by a worse accident, you know, since then. But um, I mean, I'm sorry to say that for the people yeah. who and, were involved. And, and this in the was a. Um, so it was an expedition of I think it was, it was twelve people or something like that. Twelve. And um, yeah. and so a few survived, but it was because of a, a freak storm that they didn't forecast. Is that is that the right story? Well, 
this is where it gets really delicate. This this one of the reasons that this book, this um, incident, this accident has been written so much about is because of blaming. There's a real strong blame mm -hmm. game going on between um, the leaders of the two expeditions joined together, and they each blame each other, and uh, this blame of the of the Park Service because the storm. When they found out the storm was coming, they had radioed, the climbers had radioed the um, park service to check in, and they forgot to tell them about the storm. Uh -huh. um, so, you know, there's a lot of uh, people who blame, there's a lot of blame uh, going on. And so it's a it's a sensitive topic, which is, I, I think makes it even harder for our family to have talked about is the, the fact that there was so much controversy as well as just the loss of these seven young men. So... Yeah. Well, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, well, do you want to read a couple more poems from from the book so so people can hear more? <laughs> sure, yeah. sure. Okay, this is um, page eleven. It's called Uncollected. They never found his body, we say, and not they never found him. If seeing is believing, what's not seeing? Some people I've heard at poetry readings play a drinking game, taking a swig each time the word body turns up in a poem. If they were reading this, they'd be drunk out of their minds by now. That's how we say it, drunk out of their minds, not drunk out of their bodies. Out of his mind with grief too, they said, when my grandfather almost stopped speaking the year after the accident staring into space and saying nothing. No one could get drunk on that, on the sober silence we cocoon around my uncle's absence. Lost, like the ten tribes of Israel, like milk teeth, ironically, as that's the one thing my grandfather has left of his beloved son's body, of him. A small box of milk teeth, each a tiny snow-slick mountain, faintly stained with blood it was uncollected from white out a, gr a great example of the book i mean it's the um the power and the images are just just wonderful and, and tragic in this book um, do you want to read another one sure um this is uh page 15 map of the disaster site if you look at if you look at any of the books uh, written about the the tragedy they all have maps of the disaster site and i was looking at the the map of the mountain and all the x's of what happened where and and i wrote this map of the disaster site one here is the muldrow glacier and here are camps six and seven this dotted line running up this side is the route of ascension over there is archdeacon's tower and here are the probable sites of bivouac. This is where his sleeping bag was sighted, but not recovered. It was wrapped around a pole as though a signal to no one. X marks the ax, also seen, but not recovered. Like the bodies of three other climbers, X, 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 schemata of the mountain's stigmata. Two, in theory, a map is useful it renders two-dimensional what exists in three dimensions, or in this case, no dimensions, unless we're counting time, which is like wearing both shoes on one foot. In fact, a map's convenient, able to be folded up and carried in my pocket, 
opening and closing like a lung. But in the end, a map is useless. Only gravity's graffiti and snow's slow pentimento. Unrepentant map, no X marks the mountain's, the mountain's fountainelle. It's loosely woven selvage where he fell through into the legendless depths of the wild mind, the memory, leaving us only this permanent impermanence, this paper tattoo, breathing in and out the black ink of not knowing. That was Map of the Disaster Site from Whiteout by Jessica Goodfellow. Um, I was about to say... Um, that if anybody has any questions, feel free to um, pass them along or leave them in the chat windows, either on YouTube or Facebook, and I will pass them along. Um, and Angela Gardner already asked, um, does she feel more connected to the grief of of your uncle after writing this? Like, do you feel, was it like a, what what was the experience of um, of writing this book? Did it, did it like, did it like close the book or like connect, like make make the... I don't know. Was it like a, uh, what's the word? Um, um, like closure? Was it, was it kind of closure or what was the emotional feeling of, of having written this? Yeah, it was actually, I would say the emotional feeling would be a very healing experience. So, um, you know, when I first started, I was really quite concerned and, and quite afraid to tell my mom and to talk to her about it. So I went from that to, um, and I, as I did the research and read the books and talked to people, and I cried quite a lot, quite a lot for um, all the lost possibility. Um, my grandparents had always told me that my uncle would have liked me, that, you know, so I always knew that some, I don't think I'm a lot like him, but I'm a science-minded person as he was, and um, just there's certain things that they, you know, so I always sort of felt that lost possibility of, of connection. And then as I wrote it, I felt because we could finally talk about it to my mom and some of my sib my sister who went with me to Denali, we talked a lot about it. Um, and then another really healing thing that happened was um, on the back of the book, there's a picture of the 12 climbers. And that picture was taken by um, Howard Snyder. Uh, so he was the leader of the second expedition that joined up with uh, my uncle's expedition. And he and the leader of my uncle's expedition had a quite a um, vitriolic exchange about blame over the whole thing. And um, so I was actually a little concerned to ask his permission to use the picture. Um, so I, first of all, I couldn't find him anywhere. He And I, I was looking all over social media trying to find him. And I finally contacted a person who had, who had used this picture in their book. And they said... I can tell you where he is. He's in Canada. And he gave me a way to contact him. And when he wrote back, he gave me permission. And he said really, really kind things. And so I contacted the first guy who had given me the contact information to tell him how well it went. And he said, I thought it would go well. Because I think when I, when I interviewed, this man said, when I interviewed um, Mr. Snyder, that um, I got the feeling that he felt bad about all the vitriol and, you know, as an, as he got older and more, a little more distance, you know, just, and maybe as, as he had children sort of begin to understood stand more about the loss as opposed to the blame. And, uh, he said, I thought, I thought it might be a healing thing for him. So I, I can't say whether it was or not, but I really feel like writing this book, it, it helped a lot of people feel more healed. So that would be my main, I think, emotional experience from having written the book. It was hard. 
but but I think healing is what came out of it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it so- definitely sounds like that to me. Um, let, let's hear another poem. Okay, this is um, page thirty-eight. It's called "Meanwhile." Um, this is more about uh, the experience for afterwards of the family. Okay, so this is meanwhile. Here is a photo of my second son. He has the same angled ears as my uncle. No one has ever said so. Cousins, aunts, all look at him long and hard and then don't say so. My sister cuts tiny fabric squares, sews them back together in a quilt. Her son, younger than mine, thinks this is crazy. He points to a blue square, says, my soccer shirt from last year. He smiles at he as he points, looking just like his father. Everybody says so. My son wonders why I don't quilt, don't slice and rearrange ordinary days we won't recall into mosaics that we will. The opposite of remember, I once read, is dismember. I am silenced by the unspoken family pledge. Until we have a body, we cannot say uncle. Meanwhile, my son picks at his ear, thinks he looks like no one. And that was Meanwhile from uh, White Out by Jessica Goodfellow. And, and that line, um, you know, um, I'm silenced by the unspoken family pledge. Until we have a body, we cannot say uncle. I mean, that is just such a powerful line in um, in the book. And then you have these um, um, poems where the title are words that have the word uncle hidden in them. Um, how did that come about? Like, where was the idea? I know, um, you know, the poem that we published from the book um, had a different title at the time. So, so you know, what was that, that that you were, how did that come to be? So I, um, I, I had written one poem that, that I just happened to notice had the word mm. uncle in it. I didn't intend for it. It was, I think it was the poem Uncalculable. And it has unk right at the beginning and Ellie at the end. So I was like, oh, look at that. And so then I thought, oh, maybe I could make the, title of the book something like that so I started making a list of all the words that I could hide the word uncle in and um playing with all kinds of like typography like shall I in shall I italicize the word uncle or shall I bold it or you know all kinds of different things like how am I going to make it and all of those made it difficult to read and a friend of mine uh Peter Mallet said why don't you put it in gray type and then it looks like a ghost which is really you know really useful. So then I did that and I had a whole bunch of them. And then I was like, well, which one shall I make the title of the book? None of them seem right for the title of the book. And then I came up with a different title for the book. So then I thought, well, I really like all these poem titles with the uncle. So I just went back to all these other poems and stripped off their original titles and put in these other mm-hmm. titles. Yeah. 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 Well, it really, I hadn't thought of it like a ghost, but that's exactly the feeling it makes. It was like the ghost of the uncle is there. Right. He's there, but not as there as everything yeah, else, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like there's like a, a thing that like he can't be touched, you know, which is the the power of the mm-hmm. book is that like he's there, like so strong in people's memories and in history, but like you can't actually grasp him. Yeah, yeah. It was a very moving book. I really loved reading it. Um, it was one oh, of those books you. like I thought, um, like if this was a rattle chapbook prize book we totally would have <laughs> picked it because it was really a really really memorable book um um so so let, let me ask about about more in general um you seem like a poet that does a lot of research for your poems like there's a lot of like etymology and like 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 how do you go about um like writing a poem like what like like uh-huh. it feels i've read like the poems that we've published of yours and i've read this book 
And there's just, it feels like there's a lot of research in all your poems. Is that something normal that you usually do? Um, and, and how do you just, how do you approach a poem? Okay. So no, I don't, I don't start with the research. Usually um, I usually start with, um, I just jot down in, in a notebook, like images that come to me, a lot of wordplay. I'm interested in words. Um, sometimes if I hear some piece of scientific information that I find really interesting, I write it in the notebook. And then um, if I use something like that, then I do go back to make sure that I have the understanding. So I'll do the research after the mm -hmm. fact that I've got an interest in something um, sometimes. Um, yeah, I just have a notebook and I just jot things down. And uh, then when I have, you know, when I sit down to write, I open the book and I see like what things I've written in the notebook and what can I use and where do I go from. And um, then if it, you know, if it is fact-based or science-based, I do want to be sure I get it right. So then I do go and look. And I do like a lot of wordplay. So there's a lot of checking of etymology just for fun. Yeah. Um, and, and how did you, um, like, why did you come to poetry? And how did you end up in Japan? Like, those are two things that I'm both wondering. Um, is there any connection? Like, a lot of times poetry takes people no. places, but uh, Japan is, is a far place to be taken from Philadelphia. Yeah, no, so um, I started writing poetry before I could write. I, would, I don't, I, know I knew the word poetry or poem, but I would say to my mother, um, you know, write this down, write this down. I have a poem, write it down. And so she would write it down. So I have always, always done that. But I didn't think of poetry as something that you did um, as a profession. It was just something that I did. And, um, you know, I ended up studying um, mathematics and things like that. And, um, but I was always writing poetry in, you know. Um, and then... When did I start publishing? Um, pretty much started publishing when I was in my early 30s. I just uh, just started publishing, and um, I don't know why. I just did. <laughs> um, I guess at that time I joined a, um, a writer's group, like a community writer's group, and they said, why don't you publish? And so I tried, and it worked out pretty well, so, so I kept publishing. Um, as for being in Japan... Um, Let's see. I came to Japan for a job a long time ago, and at that time I met my husband. And um, so ever since that time, it's been back and forth between the Japan and the States. And then eventually we had to settle somewhere so our kids could have a you know a education that was coherent. So we ended up settling here for a while. Yeah. What What's your experience of Japan? Um, like, do you? Do you like being there? Like, like what is, what are the differences between the U.S. and Japan? I'm just always curious. So I figured I'd, I'd ask since you're sitting there. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a huge question. Um, I, I like being here. I miss being in the States, of course, of course. But um, this is not a, a bad place to be um, for a lot of reasons. It's a very stable place. Um, social welfare here is very uh universal so there's a lot of stability in that sense um but i'm you know i i i can't go anywhere without being without everyone noticing that i am not what you know not a, a i'm not japanese <laughs> and um you know it, it's 
it's an I'm an outsider and there's no way of ever ever hiding it ever mm-hmm. there's nothing I could do to hide it and so um, as my children have grown up and got more integrated into society well you know I'm sort of the only one on the outside mm-hmm. anymore so it's lonely it's lonely but um, you know it is very stable it's a lovely place there's really good things about living here and then there's hard things are, are you fluent in Japanese at this point like do you <laughs> I'm not fluent. I mean, I do speak Japanese. That's what, you know, but I'm, I wouldn't say that I'm fluent, but mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm fine. I go about, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah. I talk to people when I am. Do your, do your children speak Japanese as their primary language? So my children are bilingual and they're truly, truly bilingual, which is amazing. They were, um, one of my sons was born here and when he was four months old we happened to move to the states and my other son was born there and English was their first language because I I was the one at home at that time teaching them and when we moved back to Japan that's when they started learning Japanese they were still young mm-hmm. um, but they struggled the first couple of years of elementary school because they were behind everybody but um, now they're just completely bilingual and it's really astonishing i'm always amazed when i ask them to translate something how they translate ideas and not words Hmm. you know where i will translate the words like they said this and it means this and my kids just completely translate notions it's really interesting yeah. Yeah, it's just so strange that the whole language acquisition, um, you know, neurobiology and the way it, it concretizes at like I think seven or eight or so usually, yep. and then, you know, if you if you before that you're like open to everything, and then you like fix right. on a language um, as if right. it's prescribed. It's so cool. Do, um, do you do um, anything with with poetry in Japan? Um, like like what is it like being a poet in Japan? Like like I know Richard Gilbert lives there, um, and I know there are haiku. Um, communities but that's pretty much all i know about poetry in japan like what is it like being a um, english-speaking poet in japan are there opportunities for you or people to talk to or how does that go it's not it's pretty lonely but it's not i'm not alone um i there uh, last weekend was the japan writers conference and it was online this year because of covid but um so once a year there's a writers conference and it's for people writing in english so there's that um there's a reading series in uh, in this area where I live, um, which it's not a regular reading series, but three or four times a year, there's a reading series. And I always uh, go to that. I've been lucky enough to read at it a number of times. And when we get together for these things, I meet other people who write. They're not all poets. In fact, you know, most of them are not poets, but, um, I also belong to an online group of, um, Tonka poem writers and we write Tonka together and they're um, about half of us are Japanese and half of us are not in, in not English Japanese. do you mean or in yeah Japanese? we all write in yeah. English right I don't do any writing in Japanese myself mm-hmm. um, so but you know it is it's it's lonely and I have to say you know the the one thing about COVID that's been good is everybody has put their readings online I go to readings three four times a week online you know and in this in my regular life when when it's, there's nothing like that I go to readings three times a year mm-hmm. so i just i go to, i sign up for everything because i just have this opportunity which i don't generally have yeah well this is yeah. so great i love that that we get to do these rattlecast and, um, and yeah. we started before the covid but um right. it, it's just wonderful to do um you know to be able to reach people oh, i love talking to people from different places and uh, yeah. you know on the on the poets respond we had somebody from india ireland 
and uh, Nigeria on Sunday. It's just so cool to have this community that that yeah. you know thinks and, and speaks through poetry. Um, yeah. In your in your bio, you say, let me put this on the screen really quick. You say um, um, that you you work at a university in Japan, and the imagery from the culture can be found in her writing. Um, mm-hmm. And then Richard Westheimer on the uh, chat window here asks, um, um, do the do the rhythms and sounds of Japanese find their way into your poems? Which is a really interesting question. Like, do you think, you know, does, does it affect that? Like, there's a certain way that, that, at least from what I'm familiar with it, that the Japanese poems work. And the language is very different being... Um, um, not metrically based kind of and, right, and right. yeah does that does that find its way too or is it just sort of the imagery that's interesting I've never ever thought about it so you know off off the cuff I would say I don't think so because I don't write in Japanese and I don't even think in Japanese you know I still hmm. think in English so I don't I don't think so but I would have to think about that and look through and see if I found found anything like that but I wouldn't. I wouldn't think so. But, like I said, first time anybody's ever asked me that. So. <laughs> yeah, well, I have good questions here all the time. Um, well, you have a couple other poems that you wanted to share. Um, do you want to read some of the other poems not from the book? Um, and which one do you want to sure. do do first? Well, uh, which do you think would? Um, I don't know. Do you want to do? There's the poem in Three Penny Darwin's Conjecture. Do you want to do that right now? Sure. Okay. okay. Yeah, and this is in Three Penny Review from uh, summer 2017. So I'll pull it up right from their website. Uh-huh. Um, a great, great magazine, Three Penny Reviews. So if you don't, if you're not familiar with that, it's a great place to, um, to go. I think they're all online now, right? So you can read it all I online. I think so. Yeah. 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 So, so here it is. This is, um, get on screen, Darwin's Conjecture from Three Penny Review. Go ahead whenever, whenever you want. Okay. Darwin's Conjecture. Darwin was desperate for proof that animals wept. It wasn't enough that houseflies hum in the key of F or that doll sheep keep lifelong their horns, adding like trees a ring each year. Darwin wanted tears. Being the only species that weeps was lonely, thought Darwin, dreaming of manic animals. No, it wasn't enough that honeybees can count to four. Darwin wanted more or less. Confess it. The reason why humans cry is the mess they fashion in comparison to the paradise they can imagine. Animals, if they imagine, must be less distressed by the severity of the disparity. Or maybe they have less disparity or less mess. As to why Darwin hoped that animals cry, we can only guess, which is a form of imagining and could lead to the emergence of tears. Instead, let us hum in the key of F and count to four or more or less and know the aurora borealis as glimpsed through the fretwork of a construction crane is a metaphor for our brain and also an analogy for why we cry all the while like darwin humming against the immensity yeah and that was um darwin's conjecture from the three penny review by jessica goodfellow um, and that's another, I, there's so much like math and science in your poems, which, which I just love as a science ish kind of person. Um, uh, why is that? Like, why are you, are you drawn to, to science and math? Like what, like your bio yeah. says that you work in a university, but it's very ambiguous. And I wonder if you're, oh, um, I work in a university teaching English and mm-hmm. creative writing here, but, um, yeah, I did study math, um, in school, uh, in college and graduate school and, um, yeah, I am interested in it, and I read a lot of that as, you know, as as my, you know, uh, 
fun reading. So uh, I just stumbled, like this one, this poem, um, I read about Darwin uh, and his conjecture that animals weep. And then I looked through my notebook and I happened to have things about doll sheep and things about the fly humming and that bees, honeybees can count. And, and those things were just already in the notebook from other things I had read other times. And so I just, you know, used them all together. But yeah, I just happened to read stuff like that for, for my pleasure. So then I have that at my disposal. Yeah, 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 I just, it's just something I've always noticed. There's that 22 poem, too, about all the different, um, you know, ways 22 works and things like that. I did a lot of research for that one, I'll admit. <laughs> yeah, what, what do you think the, the connection between, like, like the science and, and math? It, you know, there's this division between the humanities and, uh, and the sciences. Um, like, and I feel like, I always feel like poetry is sort of doing the same thing in a different way. It's like the, the right brain instead of the left brain pursuing science is kind of what poetry is. Um, but, but, but what do you think about that? Like, like why, what draws you to both? Cause you're clearly drawn to both. Well, I think I'm drawn to um, significations. So to me, I'm really, really interested in math. And, you know, math is just another language. It's a really concise language. And I think I'm interested in language and, and, and signs and significations and ways of stating things. I'm, um, you know, I'm less interested in history than I am in English. And I'm less interested in science than I'm in math. So I've, I really think English and math go together and science and history go together. Like, science and history or the applied English and math. And I think I just tend a little towards the more pure um, significations. Yeah, I just don't don't think that they're that different. Yeah, I, I really am always astonished when people say, oh, I just really hate math. And I think maybe you, you got taught math improperly because it's if you like language, you should like math. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. Like it's all, it's sort of the same, it's the same thing, really. And, yeah. um, and I think uh, part of the problem with math is that people are just taught completely wrong, which is why right. is people like hate the common core in the United States. I don't know if you know about right. that being in Japan, but there's yeah. the whole um, where people actually teach you number sense so you can understand what math is doing rather than just trying to right. rotely memorize things. And, and right, parents right. like hate that because they don't know what's going on. But Because they never learned it. Exactly. But actually, it's yeah. a better way to learn. <laughs> it, it really is. And, and the people who are like good at math are just people yeah. who learned that on their own because they were never taught, but they learned it. Or maybe they had a great teacher. Yeah, yeah, or know? that too. Yeah, exactly. And um, and, and it is like it's, it's, it's the language of the universe is like Carl Sagan would probably say or something. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. Well, do you, the other poem you have here is Crow's um, Reckoning. And there's a there's a motion video. I'm not going to play the whole thing, but we'll play a little bit of it just so people get the idea of it. And then they can find it at it's, it's motion poems. Right. Is that the right? Yeah. Motion yeah. Poems. Motion poems. Let me um, let me pull this up and just play a couple the first few, you know, like 30 seconds or something. And then um, and then we will uh, and then you can read it yourself because they, they draw it out in the video. But here we go. A crow remembers who crowded it out of the trash can. Who cast at it sticks and rocks and rockets fashioned from bottles. Long after you have forgotten. The crow remembers your face. 
That is probably a good preview. I don't want to play the whole thing because it's kind of long. And um, it is and, and I want long, people yeah. to, to go to that Motion Poems website. This was um, embedded for some reason in uh, P, poetsandwriters.org. But, um, but Motion Poems, um, do you want to read that poem first? Then we'll talk a little bit about it probably. Sure. Uh, Crow's Reckoning. A crow remembers who crowded it out of the trash can, who cast at it sticks and rocks and rockets fashioned from bottles. Long after you have forgotten, the crow remembers your face, the space between your eyes, the rise of your cheek, your beakless maw. And with caw, both credo and credicor, the crow causes you to recall that gardens are, by their nature, not nature, but the cult of cranium over creation, a human rebuke cloaked in clover and coxcomb and crocus. A crow says, if a garden is not God-rung, then who seeded the Garden of Eden, crux of the human cradle, till seeded by Adam and even then, who do you suppose, forespoke the stain of Cain, if not a crow or a murder of crows? And that was Crows, a reckoning um, from Diode. Uh, let me just show you Diode. It's, it's diodepoetry.com, D-I-O-D-E poetry.com. Um, so if you want to check out that, and also the uh, Burning Ant Hisako. Um, so, so how did that come to be, that, that they did a motion poem um, for it? And, and can you say a little bit about what motion poems are? Because um, I know a little bit about them. They did a couple poems from Rattled, but I don't really know that much. Like, did they approach you after reading it? And, and how did that work? <laughs> So Motion Poems is um, a project by the poet Todd Boss um, in which he uh, he en engages um, filmmakers to make a short film out of poems. And some of them are animation and some of them are um, like live film. And um, yeah, so he a uh, couple uh, some years ago he just put out a call for um people to go i think usually he approaches the poet i guess i don't know but there was at one point a, a call for submissions and i thought oh that would be fun to try um i didn't i did not expect to get selected at all but i sent you were you sent three poems and i sent this one because it reminded me of of some of his work and i thought it might resonate with him you know so i and it's the one he chose so that's how that happened. Was there any interaction between you? Or did you just like, it was like, here's the poem. And then all of a sudden you saw the video. Is that how that works? Yep. Yep. You give them the poem and you give them creative permission to do what they want with it. And, and you don't get any say after that. So yeah, when I first saw it, I was, yeah, I, I happen to love it. I think it's really great, but it's not something I would have come up myself, which is interesting, right? Yeah, it's so, yeah. yeah, so interesting to see someone else do something. Yeah. 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 That is really cool. Um, do you want to, we have a few minutes left. Do you want to go back to the book and, um, and, sure. and read maybe like two more from the book? Yeah, sure. Okay. Okay. This one is um, on page 55. It's called Glacial Erasure. Um, and this is not an erasure poem. Um, erasure poem is a kind of when you take a text that's already written and you erase words and the words that are left make a poem. This is not that. This is the literal meaning of erasure, the act of erasing. Okay, so this is called Glacial Erasure. As he climbed up, the, gl the glacier under his feet was inching down. If he'd kept moving, he could have scaled that ice escalator and never noticed. He did not keep moving. 
1967, experts estimated the glacier would one day drift with its accidental stowaways to the lowlands. Like Dolly's molten clock sliding over a draped figure, a body recumbent in the persistence of memory. Instead, melting glaciers empty out their pockets, littering the landscape with detritus and dead relatives. The glacier that erased my uncle soon will be erased, unfolded, vacant of weather and weight, roof become floor, become flora, of a habitat as fluid as memory. Excellent. That was Glacial Erasure from, uh, from the book Whiteout. Um, yeah, do you want to... Oh, no problem. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> That's okay. It's, you know, it's, it's uh, late at night here in the U.S., but it's, it's early in the morning in Japan. I don't um, know why. Stop. <laughs> Sorry about that. No, no that's okay. Um, so, so let's um, finish out with one last poem, maybe. Okay, this one is called Unreachable. Mm-hmm. It's on page 53. Okay. And it has an um, epigraph by Simone de Beauvoir. And the epigraph is, Regret has to be useless, or it's not really regret. Okay, Unreachable. Rescuers did not find my uncle's body, but they found his axe at an icy altitude, impossible to navigate without one. A little higher up, they found my uncle's sleeping bag at an altitude, unsurvivable without one. You likely have a pen in purse or pocket. Take it out and write a list of all you need at your present altitude. Next, change altitudes. Now, make another list. The two biggest regrets of your life. Take your time. Get it right. Because here is all you need to know about need. That lists of regrets, cross one off. You're going to need that space later. And that was unreachable from from Whiteout. There's just so many twists and turns. Um, is that something? How much revision do you do? I, that's one thing I was wondering. I forgot to ask about. Like, is, is this like you you have these notes and you write, or do you um? You know, and do you go through over like how do you come up with that stuff that just it moves so much and there's so much like play of words and and just twists and turns throughout the poem. Do you, do, do you are you like a many draft kind of poet or are you uh, first thought best thought more? Um, that's a good question. I I don't start writing until I have quite a lot figured out in my head. Like mm-hmm. I don't put pen to paper immediately like a lot of people do I don't do free writing I don't do any of that it's all worked out not all it's worked out into my head until I see a pattern or something then I write it down and it usually takes me maybe two months to write a poem Hmm. but I it's not I do revise but it isn't I don't really I don't write things down until I'm getting close to a form um or a pattern or something i don't do a lot of writing that's not that doesn't have some kind of underlying pattern yeah yeah so yeah um yeah that's a great great explanation um what do you have like lined up next do you have another manuscript you're working on i think i think you mentioned that one of those poems i don't know if it was crows or the other one was from a manuscript is there a project going for or what's going on next well i'm working on a manuscript now um it's yeah, it's less thematic than any of my other 
books, but it's it is uh, it does go from the beginning of a person of a woman of a woman's life to the end of her life. So, um, you know, there's childhood and adolescence, and then there's like um, young young adulthood, and then there's middle age, and then there's um, old age. So. It has, you know, it has a time trajectory, but it's thematically a lot looser than any of the other things I've ever written. Hmm. Yeah. Actually, well, well, looking forward to that, and, and, and you know, let me know when it's publishing. Have you back on again? Okay. But thanks so much, Jessica. It's great, great to talk to you today, and yeah. uh, and thanks for sharing this. Just wonderful book. I hope people people check it out. Thank you so much for having me. I, I enjoy. Um, I listen to Rattle every single week. I, I've never watched it on the. <laughs> the um live stream i always listen to it on a podcast so but i listen every week so awesome. i'm really well thanks so much now you can listen to yourself which i'm forced to do <laughs> i won't every... i won't do that <laughs> yeah i know it's kind of brutal but i have to know like what i screwed up and what i didn't and in, in yeah. live real time i can't so i have to listen to them and um it's tough listening to yourself well it's your job you have to i don't have <laughs> that's to true to i get paid i get paid to listen to myself screw up yeah yeah okay well thanks so much Jessica. it's a great talk to you hope you have a great rest of your day uh, in the morning in Thank Japan you. there. Thank you for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. Have a good one. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Hey, so that was uh, Jessica Goodfellow with her new her, um, most recent book, Whiteout, um, which you can see on the screen right here. A, a beautiful cover, too, of this book, Whiteout. Um, and it's available from the University of Alaska Press, um, which you can find... Um, uh, there's no website there, but it's, I'm sure you can find it. Just Google it, University of Alaska Press. And uh, that is Whiteout by Jessica Goodfellow, uh, one of the really wonderful poets that, um, you know, every time we publish her, it's just such, she has such, I'm not surprised that um, she doesn't, you know, she she sits on a poem for two weeks because her poems are so rich and interesting and um, and not the kind of poems that you just rattle off. Like, I, I, I think she's one of those poets that's very clear, like uh, like a lot of people I know who um, take a lot of time and uh, put everything they have into every poem. Um, and, and that's Jessica Goodfellow, so check her out. Um, and and there, you can find more, I forgot to say, at uh, jessicagoodfellow.com, which is Jessica, look at sounds, goodfellow, goodfellow.com. So uh, pretty easy if you know how to spell, jessicagoodfellow.com. Um, and grab her book Whiteout and her other books too. Um, we should have talked about uh, Mendeleev's Mandala. I kind of forgot about that. I've, I read that a long time ago. And I forgot that I did, but it's a really good book, too. So check that out. Uh, that's from May Apple Press. Um, now let's move on to our open mic portion of the show. And as always, the open mic for the Rattlecast is um, a prompt based on last week's prompt by Megan. Last week's prompt was, um, right here, write a poem from the perspective of a famous person, dead or living. So that was the prompt for this week. If you wrote a poem, um, I have to say goodbye to Jessica and put the numbers on screen. Um, if you wrote a poem, email it if you haven't yet to openmic at rattle.com so I can show it on screen when you read. And then call up uh, 818-850-7727. Let it ring a few times and I will call you right back as soon as there's uh, as soon as your place comes up in line. Or send me a chat message over Skype to rattle poetry all one word. Uh, just send a little chat message there through Skype, and then uh, I will call you back when the time is right. Skype's slightly preferred because we can see you, but uh, if we, if you um, would rather do phone or only have phone, that's totally fine, too. Now, uh, my poem for this week for the prompt um, was based on Utsi, which um, I don't know who, 
you know, if, if you watch the uh, Poetry Spun Live on Sunday, there was a poem about, um, for my, my psych who for the week, was about, um, about uh, uh, footstep tracks that archaeologists found in White Sands National Park. Um, and they tried to piece together what this person did 12,000 years ago walking through the sand at White Sand National Park. And um, so I wrote a little haiku about that. And that reminded me of Utsi, um, who, and also, you know, talking about Jessica, reading Jessica's book reminded me of Utsi too. So it was like two things reminded me of Utsi. Um, and, and that was a um, ice mummy, if you're not familiar with, um, with Utsi, found in northern uh, Italy in the Alps there. 92 meters, I think it was, from the border. And um, Utsi was found in 1991, I think it was, and um, um, and, and just really well-preserved because of um, the way that he was right on the snow line. So the snow would melt and thaw and melt and thaw around him, just drawing the water out. So he was kind of like um, a freeze-dried in a way that most um, ice people aren't. And um, and they found that he, uh, you know, they could examine the contents of his stomach. They found that he started out eating food from 10,000 feet, then came down to, they assume, his village at about 4,000 feet, and then um, w- was in some kind of knife fight, killed two people with a bow and arrow, and then fled up back into the mountains. And, um, and then them was shot in an arrow, with an arrow in the back. Um, and died and was left in this glacier in the Alps. And uh, that was Utsi. That was his life. And there's a museum there um, in Tyrol, Italy, just devoted to Utsi. And it's 30 years since they found him. And this was my poem. I was trying to imagine what he would say if he could speak. So that my poem here is Utsi Speaks. You've made a museum of me. Stack stones like blue ice at the feet of my mountain. We pile our stones on the peaks where the wind speaks in the voices of the gods. Am I one of your gods? Is this why you brought me here? I whisper, but there is no wind. Your torchlights never flicker in this smooth room. Everything echoes. What would you like to know? Did I dream in the time in between? Does the tanned leather of my loincloth dream of goats? Ha! What is time but the spine of a mountain bending back? And what is a story but the arc of time? You know mine. You've made a map of my meals. You've measured my wounds with every kind of metal. I worked with metal. I know the rocks that weep in the power of the blade. But I'll tell you what you know. I climbed down to the village and the smoking huts were too much smoke. I killed two painted men with the same arrow, wrestled with a knife and fled. They found me by my fire two days later, my belly full of meat and bread. You found me still full of that meat and bread. I'll tell you what you really want to know. Was I happy in my primitive life? Was I happier than you are now? Yes, so happy that I fled. So happy that I built the flame and ate the bread that brought the arrow I knew was coming. So happy with life that the ice was all I had left to turn to. That is my poem, Utsi Speaks. Uh, And let's read Megan's poem. This is In the Hours Left, after Mary Antoinette. 
I write a letter to my sister. My hands don't shake until I mention the children, and then only a little. This is something to be proud of in the hours left. I'm forced to change clothes in front of the guards. I slip on the plain white shift and think, let them leer at this borrowed body, this almost ghost in the hours left. My hair is shorn. My hands are tightly bound. I leashed and led roughly a feral dog at the last. Is there anything human that remains of me in the hours left? No carriage like my husband. I'm hauled by open cart, but grateful, for beyond the jeering crowd I see birds. I lift my face to the sun, the sun's last kiss in the hours left. Stumbling to my death, I step on the executioner's foot. Pardon me, sir, I did not do it on purpose, I tell him. The smallest things we do matter in the hours left. I see my children's faces, I pray for strength. Before the blade, my heart stirs like a bird awakened. Something lasts, even when there are no hours left. That was a great poem. That was In the Hours Left by Megan, uh, after Mary Antoinette. Um, I didn't read that ahead of time, so that's a great poem. And, and I'm not sure what the form is. It's sort of Ghazal-like, repeating, you know, with that refrain repeating, but three lines. I'll have to ask her what that what that form is, and if it's... Um, just something she made up. This is a trick. You can call it a nonce form. A nonce form is something you just made up yourself. Um, we'll see. I don't know. We'll see what what a uh, what a Megan called that. Um, well, let's move on to the open lines. And um, uh, first up, we have Angela Gartner, and we will give her a call. So the phone is ringing. Hopefully, you can't hear. Oop. <laughs> hey Hold Angela, on. yeah. Oh, I mean, I have to stop you here. That's no problem. I I didn't hear myself at all. Yeah, um, I was listening to you talking about Megan's phone poem. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, how are you how are you doing tonight? Let me pull up your poem. Um, where is it? There it is. Um, so so who did you write about? So Edgar Allan Poe. This oh, is of course. My poem. Of course. You're, yeah, it's your yeah. poem for, for October, which is the perfect Edgar Allan Poe month. <laughs> yeah, I decided I'm just going to like, you know, invoke Poe and this was like a good way to do it. So too. Um, but I wrote about the mysterious um, is mysterious death. And I, I went to there was an international Poe Festival that happened online from the Poe House, the Poe Baltimore House uh, a couple weekends ago. Um, the first week in October. And I learned some other things about Poe and especially about his death. And there's a couple theories. Um, the theory is that he um, died of rabies. But then their other theory is cooping, which is basically, um, you know, and this is so timely, but he was actually around election. It was around election time when he went to Baltimore. And basically, if you've seen Gangs of New York, it's kind of like that, where they take, they kidnap, they take guys, make them vote again and again. And like, there was this whole movement, you know, not movement, there was this thing in the 1800s that it's a theory that he was kind of kidnapped. And, you know, people were kind of using him. Um, you know, they drug him up and then keep him voting again and again. Oh, wow. That's, that's crazy. I had no, I, I thought he, um, he died drunk, you know, like, like, 
choking on his own vomit in the gutter. But that's not, is that apocryphal? That's the story I always heard. Yeah, that's like another theory. But mm-hmm. actually, um, the other side of this is that I heard where he actually had almost an alcohol allergy where I mean, he did like cognac, but he stopped drinking alcohol because if he drank alcohol, he would get really drunk. Like, mm-hmm. so it would be something that he didn't really want to do. And I mean, during the time of his death, according to you know what I read, like he was commissioned to do a story for a magazine. He was supposed to edit like a book, so he had things going on still. So I mean, and but I mean, his you know people around him did say that he was looking ill, and that's where the rabies thing come in because it says so. There's like you know the uh, supposedly the congestion of the head was. You know, there was it said as maybe a cause of death, so that could be from a lot of things. So, like, That's like a, something, yeah. like something happened. I that, mean, it's still a mystery, but I'm just, I took, you know, obviously liberties with this. You know, I kind of, I'm thinking about my ending though. Like when I, when I do my ending, I'm like, well, maybe I shouldn't have ended it like that, you know. But yeah, that's so interesting. It's another one of the things, I guess, where I just assumed like if a professor tells you something. You assume I, I assumed it was true back when I was like 20, you know, so there's so, so one of the things is um, Shakespeare. Um, I had a professor who um, told me, you know, told the class that Shakespeare was not a real person and that he was like an amalgam of people who wrote together and made these books. And I went like 10 or 15 years believing that. Real, and then I realized like 15 years later after college that it was um, just his pet theory for this book that he wrote himself. And, um, that most people think Shakespeare was an actual person. So I don't know, just too much faith in authority, I guess for me. Cause I thought, I thought he just died of alcoholism. I, I um, thought so too, but like, as I've been learning more about Poe, like mm-hmm. there's, you know, there's just some, that's why his death is so mysterious. That's, there's just so many theories out there. If you look this up, Cooping, like there is actually, you can um, read all about like all these different theories about mm-hmm. him. So. Well, let's hear, well, let's hear the poem, My Mysterious Death, Edgar Allan Poe. Go ahead whenever you're ready. Okay. My Mysterious Death, Edgar Allan Poe. It was a ruthless dishonor and heinous crime. The pure cruelty, cruelty for what was done to me, it began when I took a night train into Baltimore to see my aunt, and I wasn't feeling well. I was paid a commission to write a magazine story. I didn't know elections were happening in the city. I rushed down the street to see, but suddenly I was grabbed by three men. My collar and black trousers were torn. I screamed at them to stop. Do you know who I am? A punch to my ribs then dragged into a tavern. I was forced to drink a foul-tasting, drug-laced wine. Stumbling about, I was taken to fraudulent voting polls. My performance clothes, already in tatters, were robbed. They dressed me in a soiled suit and shoes with holes. The wool coat was tight and didn't fit on my sore bones. The gangs weren't merciful to victims in their schemes. They beat me nearly senseless in the cooping room. The only light in my foggy brain was Virginia's hand. Over and over again, I replayed her touch in my mind. I held her in my bruised arms and kissed her forehead. My body was floating off the ground and into a bed. The voice of a man in the white coat woke me. I was in delirium seeing my love and hallucinations. The written words on my life pages looked away. 
My Virginia mother, father were standing close by. I reached out, but all I saw was the grave behind the church. It's where I'm buried, famously, but still forever lonely. Awesome. Thanks for sharing that. And let me let me ask you, I know I should move on, but um, do you think that his his legend, since you're the Poe expert now, do you think his legend grew because of um of dying young? Or do you think like like Kurt Cobain or something? Or do you think that um like what what would have happened if he if he lived? Would we um would he be still such a big literary figure? Or is is death part of the mystique? I think death is part of the mystique. And I mean that's the whole thing about the cooping theory that somewhat doesn't ring true because he was actually well known around but I think I think it is that he is so you know because he wasn't as famous as he is now like Mm -hmm. he's more famous like so many like Stephen King like there's I mean everybody like just if you ask any kid like or anybody if they know who some of the like some of the other poets are everybody knows Poe that's the one poet that everyone knows he might be the most famous yeah yeah that's true yeah and but I feel like he is definitely a poet that, you know, probably did get a little bit more seek after his death because it's it's still such a mystery. People are still talking about his death mm-hmm. and like still wondering. So I think I think that I think that rings true for sure. But I mean, he's a great poet too, though. <laughs> so it's yeah. hard for me to be like. I mean, but he's just he's not only a poet, but he's also a great writer. Like the first like. I, I just, I always latched on to him. Like, he just, like, the pit and the pendulum was, like, my jam, you know? <laughs> it was, like, the, it brought me to him in high school, and I just never let go. So. Yeah, well, thanks so much for sharing that, and always always great talking to you. Okay, thank you. Yeah, Have thanks. a great day. You too. Bye. Angel Gartner with her uh, My Mysterious Death, Edgar Allan Poe. Um, let's see, who should we call up next? We have Caitlin. We have an Alaska after the Alaskan book. Hey, Tim. Hey, Caitlin. How are you doing tonight? Pretty good. I was watching on my TV and engrossed in the Poe conversation. Yeah, yeah Poe's so. always been interesting to me because of that, um, that ratiocination. I, and I love the, um, the, um, the, the Eureka and the, and the Olber's paradox and all that's kind of cool. He, he was a visionary kind of strange person. I liked him a lot, but, but who did you write about more yeah. importantly? Um, so first I have to address a question from Sally Dunn in the okay. chat. Um, cause she, she was saying, did anybody else have an ethical dilemma about, um, using a living person for their oh. poem? And so, you know, the poems that have been read so far are all dead. And, and that was my first thought was to write, um, using, um, the, or from the perspective of someone no longer yeah, that's living. that's a good point. I didn't but really think just... about that. But like the, um, I, I think there's sort of the, I think you could use the public figure rule where, you know, you can't slander a public figure. So if you're famous enough to be a public figure, then anything goes and you can write in their voice. But if you're not a public figure, I'd be very wary. I think that that's where I'd stand off the top of my head on that question. <laughs> well, and I figure people, most of the people writing the poems for this week are probably writing from, the perspective of someone they admire. So chances are slim that it's going to be, you know, this terrible thing. Um, but the poem I wrote, I actually wrote two days before you gave oh, the prompt. But then as soon as you said it, I was like, oh my gosh, this works. Um, and it's it's a pretty interesting pairing. So um, I keep notes on my phone when I 
find something cool um, that I might want to write about. And I ended up combining these two things. Um, I listened to a Poetry Foundation podcast interviewing Alice Oswald. Um, and I didn't really know anything about her. Um, but she said this, and it's italicized in my poem, but was talking about the limitations of a pigeon. Um, and I just thought that was an interesting turn of phrase. And I think her point there was, well, I'll read the poem first. But <laughs> um, And then, yeah, actually, I want to read the poem before I say the other, talk about okay, the other person too. So, so this is Heartbreak, inspired by Alice Oswald and Timothy Chalamet. There are all kinds of heartbreak. And sometimes what's suffered surprises the unsuffering. So, let all eyes speak and ears see and mouths listen. For if we are constrained by the limitations of a pigeon or clip the wings our words possess, we deny each other the opportunity to become an open wound, glistening and raw and ripe for understanding. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. I'll have to I'll have to listen and think about that again and that when I listen to the replay. And who is Timothy Chalamet? I'm, I'm not familiar with. I'm glad you <laughs> asked. I... <laughs> so he is a young actor who is blowing up right now. Um, he's the star of Dune, the movie that was supposed to come out. Um, the oh, new wow. version that was supposed yeah, to I come love, out. I love the books, Dune. Um, I'm out of the loop for, for media and movies, but, but Dune is probably my favorite series. I love Dune. Oh, and the trailer Does looks it? so good. So I was so disappointed <laughs> when they, they delayed it to oh, next year. Oh, is that where it is? It's delayed um, to next year? Oh, wow. Year. Yeah. Um, so it's supposed to come out like now, um, and it's going to be this time next year instead. But anyway, um, so he has a quote that I was so struck by it that I thought, did somebody else say this first? Like, did he plagiarize this? And I, I couldn't find anything. And he said, he was talking about being an actor and he said, he was saying how it was like his job um, to be authentic. And so he said, you have to make yourself an open wound. Mm. And I just thought that was such a, an interesting turn of phrase. And so I feel like by working these phrases in from these two people, um, that the poem can't help but take on a similar vibe. So I felt comfortable saying like, yeah, I feel like this is a poem that could have come from either of them. And they're so very different people. But um, so, yeah, that's my that's my answer to Sally's question. And that's, that's my well, poem. Well, thanks so much for sharing that. I will have to read that again. That sounded like one of those really deep poems that I'm I'm juggling too many things to, to understand. But I'm going to look forward to looking back at that later. Thanks so much, Caitlin. <laughs> yeah, have a good one. Okay. Um, let's call up. So, so we got a round of regulars. Let's do uh, Nevadita Karthik uh, over in in India, and and she sent a poem. Let's see, who is this about? Ah, Basho. Hey, Nevadita, how are you doing this morning? Hey Tim, I'm doing good, thank you. How about you? I'm doing wonderful. Um, and so you wrote about Basho. Um, uh -huh. Is there anything you want Basho to say I... about? Yeah, is there anything yeah. you want to say about that? Well, two really small, simple things. So first, when I realized that the poet today was from Japan, I was like, "What a neat way to tie it in." And I've always been a fan of haikus. It's not something I write very often, but then this time I was like, you know, let's just tie it with the theme together. 
And the second one is, well, these are traditional haikus, sort of the kind that I think Basha would have written, mm -hmm. except that the last line sort of is uh, a line associated with negative connotations for today. So something that tells you that, oh, despite things being all happy and nice, we still suffer from some issues today to tie it in with what we're currently facing right now. Mm -hmm. Awesome. So that's pretty much it from my point of view. Excellent. Yeah. Well, let's hear it whenever you're ready. Haikus. Okay, Go ahead. Great. Um, silvery winter. Snow falls gently on the branch. Fox howls at the moon. First blush of spring. Okay. One second, sir. Under a sakura tree, the cold wind still blows. Asagao blooms. The light of its love, the sun, hides behind the clouds. Blazing red and gold, a leaf falls into the pond. Rippled reflections. Excellent. Uh, so here, Asagao is actually the Japanese word for morning glory. Mm -hmm. And morning glory is something that Basho usually writes a lot about in most of his haikus. So I just thought that would be a nice way to tie it in. Awesome. Yeah, those were great haikus. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks so much for Thank sharing you. them. Thank you so much. Yeah. Have a good rest of your day. Thank you. Have Bye. a good evening. Yeah. Bye-bye. That was um, Nivedita Karthik with uh, haikus after, after Basho. And um, let's see. And let's go to Richard Westheimer. I think he'll close it out for today. Um, we had a few. Let me see. Actually, we have. Oh, hey, Richard. How are you doing tonight? Hey, Tim. I'm doing well. Um, and hey, so... Uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, yeah. Well, who did you write about tonight? Well, in um, in keeping with the thread about the um, notion of uh, writing about current alive public figures mm -hmm. and whether, you know, what the morality of that is, I was thinking of Tom Paxton's line, great line, that some people you don't have to satirize, you just quote them. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah, I think Which, I can, I can you know, imagine he, where this is going. Let me see. Yeah, so he, he, he <laughs> okay. did that and wrote that in the '60s. But of course, nothing nothing could be more true about our president mm -hmm. than yeah. than that. And I have avoided writing uh, Donald Trump anything as a poet for years, but I just couldn't escape it all week until tonight. I just had to. Um, uh, write the four lost tweets of Donald J. Trump. So the, it says with lines taken from his actual words, like all these lines are taken from. No, no, no. So uh, eventually, so this it, consider this a draft mm -hmm. of a final project that will have mostly lines taken from Donald Trump. <laughs> but this was sort of a little drafty. And then as, I didn't realize how many lines were coming from Donald Trump until I got near the end of the poem. And then I said, I got a thing going here. I'm going to go. <laughs> I'm going to, um, I'll work on it later, but I want to get it out there tonight. Okay, cool. Let's hear it. These are the lost tweets of Donald J. Trump. Yeah. Go ahead. So your title, four lost tweets, because therefore each of these uh, verses has exactly 280 characters. Ah, okay. So it's my first attempt at a forum poem with, with tweets as the, uh, <laughs> as the, um, the form. At night, I wander the West Wing so angry that my ancestors were dirt farmers, that they had calluses thick and rough like rust, that instead of golden thrones, they shit in ditches and bowed so low they scraped their faces, inhaled the dust from beating hooves, took lashes from lords. I wander in unlit rooms aglow with screens, hear the screams my disciples chant for the blood of strangers for me, 
me, me. I see the wrathful faces shouting down the libs, the dark-skinned masses, the dams who hate, 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 the fake news who keep talking with my friends. I sneak a peek in Melania's room. She lays like a whale, not like the looker I hooked. I want to fuck her like she wants to fuck Christmas, but she doesn't care, and I can't get it up for her because that smile is so fake. Maybe I'll take up with the news lady. I'll move in on her like a bitch. That little Steven, his smile sits like a snake on that smug little face, sends me like Melania's used to when she was hot and vacant, especially when he talks of cages and stripping babies from brown arms. When you're me, they let you do it. I can do anything, maybe even with Steven. Oh, wow. So, uh, so that was Richard Westheimer's poem, The Lost Week of Donald Trump. That, that line, um, I, I want to fuck her like she wants to fuck Christmas, is going to be sticking with me for far too long. Yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> it's, like, it's like listening to Beatles tunes before you go to bed. They get stuck in your head. Yeah, yeah. My, I hope I don't have a dream of Donald Trump in Christmas, but okay. <laughs> I have a good one, Richard. Okay, thanks. Bye. Yeah, good night. Okay, well, I think that is the uh, show for tonight. Oh, wait, no, I wanted to share. Um, I think I think Vicky Miko can't make these shows, but uh, she sent another uh, haiga, which is, a, of course, a haiku. Or actually, this is, let's see, maybe it's Tonka Prose with uh, a, um, a picture. So let me let me just share this. I think she would want me to. Um, and here's a screen. This is, um, there's, a, there's a poster, a billboard, for those uh, for just listening, and it says, uh, "Beyond reasonable doubt, Jesus is alive." Eighty-three for truth, the phone number, and um, Vicky Miko's haiku to go with it is: "Last debate to prove what's true. It's a sin to tell a lie." Beelzebub. So uh, that is uh, Vicky Miko's haiga for tonight. And I think that will be the show for tonight. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. It was a pleasure, as always. I just love um, Jessica Goodfellow's book, and I hope everybody checks it out. Um, Let's see. Um, Let's see. Well, yeah, I'm not sure if I should share that. Okay, yeah, so that is the show for tonight. Thanks, everybody, again, for uh, joining us. And um, next week's guest is going to be David Mason, and um, his new and selected book is out recently, The Sound, and uh, he's also the author of Ludlow, which um, it's a, an amazing book about the Ludlow Massacre, so he's a, he's a formal poet, um, he explores history very much in his poems, he has two poems in the current issue of Rattle, which is why he's on the show this month, um, and uh, that's David Mason, he'll be calling very much like um, um, Jessica Goodfellow, he's, he's in New Zealand, so he'll, it'll be in the morning for him. And um, it'll be the night for you at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, Tuesday, October 17th. And the prompt poem for next week is going to be Write a poem exploring the motivations of a mythological creature, vampire, unicorn, dragon, etc. Um, you know what? The phone is ringing and Tamara Bess is calling in. Let me answer. Let me just answer the phone. We'll, we'll do the whole... Um, closing thing in a second but uh let's do camp tamar basket we have a couple minutes tamar are you there can you hear me 
I am. I'm sorry. I'm always sneaking in at the last second here. <laughs> well, that's all right. I had your poem, and I was thinking about reading it myself, and then I wasn't sure if I should. But but since you wrote it and sent it, let's do it. Um, so who did you write about? Copernicus. Ah, Copernicus is pissed. <laughs> and um, is there anything you want to say? Say that a few times. Yeah, Copernicus is pissed. Yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah, that's what my kids would love to say that a few times. Um, so is there anything you want to say about it, or do you just want to dive right in and read it? Um, I actually wrote this six months ago, and I've been putting it on a back burner and putting it on a back burner, and I'm so glad that I finally had some incentive to finish it at the very last moment. So Awesome. Well, go ahead and read it. Whenever you're ready, I'll put it up on screen for everybody. Copernicus is pissed. Tear out my eyes, these which no truth does tell, for every day a falsehood presents itself to me. Pray do not let my spirit break and crumble from the weight of this unburdened question, this map, this chart, this celestial mystery, ignored by everyone but I, I who for years have heard their foolish talk as it drifts to the rooftop from where I look. Up, say the children, shine the mother's worn. To the east this orb clearly makes its rounds into the sky. All day long we call it rising overhead. In a course so well described, it is counted by the hours. Chasing shadows until afternoon when evening becomes much dimmer. And then I know you'll turn to the west to say the sun has set. But wrong, 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 cries the thoughtful mind that stays to simply watch. From year to year, it seems to be in grand circuits, planets pass, and with our moon, while crossing paths, heaven knows I've had the chance to view. Not to taste or hear or smell the clue, but still I tried to reach it. Reaching out as if to climb off of this place, to see it there myself. Would that I could escape this earthly plane and fly above existence. To look around to touch and feel, to prove without a doubt. If I could know for fact these things that haunt my dreams and days rather than just written, only then would my soul drift free, drift free to finally be at rest. Excellent. It was tomorrow best with... Uh... Uh, Copernicus is pissed. <laughs> Great title. I literally poem. had that like repeating like this mantra for I don't yeah. know a couple weeks. That's the and kind of line that I, would definitely get stuck in your head. <laughs> I just couldn't finish it. I I had in mind. I my original intention was a conversation between Copernicus, um, and uh, the guy that the is blanking um, Armstrong. First man oh. on the moon. Mm -hmm. Like, you yeah. know how people say, you know, if you would uh, invite somebody to a dinner party, who would you invite? And I just imagine being, like, an observer to this conversation and ha finally ha having the confirmation 
of this career for Copernicus, and it never really caught on to that. So um, hopefully you still enjoyed what I was able to. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Thanks so much. It was Tamara Best. Uh, thanks for calling in, Tamara. I appreciate it. All right. Good night. <laughs> okay. Good night. Okay. So, um, so let's reset and uh, just say that next week's guest once again is going to be David Mason, and the prompt for the week is going to be write a poem exploring the motivations of a mythological creature, vampire, unicorn, dragon, etc. That's Megan's prompt for the week. I thought it was a good one. Uh, she gives me a whole list of these every couple months. I thought that was a good one for Halloween because um, next Tuesday is going to be the last show before Halloween, so you can write a kind of Halloween poem about a about a mythological creature like a vampire, unicorn, dragon, whatever you want. There are so many to choose from. Um, human beings are very creative, and um, and then uh, and that'll be for David Mason's show, the Rattlecast number sixty-four, Tuesday, October twenty-seventh. 9 p.m. Eastern Time, like always, even though he's in uh, New Zealand and it's going to be the morning for him. Uh, but it'll be evening for you, like always, Tuesday, October 27th. Hope to see you then. In the meantime, have a great night. Goodbye.